Last week, my brother stayed up until one in the morning just to watch the Korean baseball organization's opening night on ESPN. And every Sunday night, the rest of the country has been tuning in to watch a 10-hour documentary about a basketball season that took place more than two decades ago. And right now, people are actually gambling on virtual horse races. We miss sports, y'all. We miss watching the games, and we miss the conversation, and we miss the speculation that comes with it. And right now, I really miss sports coverage. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammondtree, and today we are examining what happens to sports reporting when we have no sports. My guest today is Alex McDaniel, one of the smartest, funniest, and southernest people in sports media. She's the deputy editor of SB Nation, but right at this moment, she's been furloughed, along with so many of her colleagues. Ever since sports leagues started shutting down due to the coronavirus, we've seen a massive shrinking of the sports media world. And Alex walks us through what it was like on her end. We also discuss whether or not we're going to have a college football season, and then we talk about bourbon and Memphis and a whole lot more. So pour yourself a drink, and for one shining moment, enjoy the Reckon interview. Alex McDaniel, thank you for coming on the Reckon interview. Of course, thank you for having me. I know it's been a weird time for you. You are the deputy editor of SB Nation. I don't think it technically stands for anything now, but at one point it was Sports Blog Nation, and now there are no sports. Yeah, I suppose there are still sports blogs. <laughs> so we, there are still sports blogs. The brand was always correct. The blogs were there even when the sports aren't. So Walk us through this last few weeks for you, as things started shutting down, I mean, obviously there was that one day that the NBA, NHL, MLB, they basically all announced they were postponing or ending their seasons within 24 hours of each other. Yeah. When did it start to set in around the office what this could mean for SB Nation? We had kind of known, I guess, in a weird way. Like nobody was really talking about it, or if they were, they weren't talking about it with me. I think not just at SB Nation, but all of my friends and colleagues who cover sports it was more combined panic of what this is already going to do to our personal lives, especially those of us with kids. We're like, okay, now we got to juggle work and teaching or just work and having a small child around. But then it was also, we were very concerned about not whether it would affect Fox Media, but how it would affect us disproportionately and fairly. So I want to say like it was just kind of an understood thing, but it still sort of blew us away the way it went down just because we weren't it's not like there was any talk that, oh, next week we're going to find out or anything like that. We knew plants were coming. And then we found out within a few days. And then I guess it was officially announced this past Friday. You know, me personally, I just, because I felt like I was already in survival mode, trying to work and take care of my son, I was trying not to even think about it. Like, let's just cover everything we can, especially because SB Nation has never been like a live sports website. You know, certainly we cover pivotal moments, we cover pivotal wins. But the thing about the SP Nation brand is it was always about the fan experience and kind of everything that was happening on the periphery of the field. So certainly we had a lot of news to cover, but we also knew that changes could be made. And especially I think as we saw different media companies announcing layoffs and announcing pay cuts and furloughs, I think probably everybody in the industry just braced themselves. To yeah. And for listeners who aren't aware, SB Nation, I believe, furloughed 95% of 
of the staff? A, a large number for three months. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact percentage just because SB Nation, you know, I work for SBNation.com, but the brand itself is also um, a whole division of hundreds of team blogs. So that's a, right. a different thing. Most of us on the flagship site were furloughed or will be furloughed from May 1st to July 31st, which that was designed around the CARES Act. And it's not an unusual amount of time in terms of it, it makes sense. But whenever it comes to furloughs, you know, it just depends on where you are in the industry. Some people get a few weeks. Some people, the furloughs are very vague to where they eventually become layoffs. This was very decisively done. So, but most of us will be furloughed and people, even people who've been there since the beginning, Spencer Hall, longtime editorial director at SB Nation, now works at Banner Society. They didn't discriminate in terms of people who were new or maybe people who were younger. I know it was a hard decision for them to make, but it's not shocking. It's just a lot because I really care about all these people. And for someone like me, I mean, I spent the past 10 years reading them and trying to emulate them and wanting to work for them. So it was like I got to work with a few of my heroes in that regard. And it's weird to see so many of those names on that list. Well, and it's been interesting here, you know, at AL.com, we announced furloughs as well. It's not quite the same thing. We have a rolling furlough that we have to take by July 31st. But you know, it's been really eye-opening just kind of looking at the model of journalism and at a time, particularly on the, on the news side of things, when we've never been read more, you know, trying to figure out how to make those financials work. And then understanding what it means to be a journalist while being furloughed. You know, you can't you can't make your podcast for SB Nation. You can't promote your own work for SB Nation. And so we can't do the same on the AL.com side. I'm gonna have to figure out what I'm gonna do for the record interview that week. And it's surreal. You had already adjusted to working from home, right? You've always worked remotely. So that wasn't necessarily an adjustment for you. But you talked about having your son at home being an adjustment. You know, you're juggling three full-time jobs, being a teacher, being a deputy editor of SB Nation, and then, of course, being a mom. And so what has been your day-to-day routine since we started shutting everything down? I haven't really had one, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't been the same thing every day. And obviously, I mean, I think I'm not gonna say most listeners, that's just presumptuous. But I think a lot of listeners might follow me and know that John Talty, who's the senior sports editor, yell.com. He's my son's dad. So he and I were suddenly faced with this challenge, not only to, to juggle him with our work, and he was also, you know, him being in sports, he was also worried as well. But the fact that we were going in between two different houses, you know, we were trying to be safe and trying to keep our travel down. And it's just, there's a challenge around every corner. And so I think he and I have done a good job at trying to be as flexible as we've always been with each other, just journalism as a child, two very unpredictable things to try to give each other a break. But there's just that routine about it. I use the mornings to do his schoolwork. Uh, Luckily, Vox is an incredible company for working parents, and they've always been extremely flexible with scheduling. And that was just never a question from the beginning. It was whatever you need to do to adjust this. If you need to just work part-time, you could do that. I attempted and still am doing a, a morning routine with him with his schoolwork and then working from noon to eight every day. And, you know, as a journalist, just as a, a writer and stuff, rarely are days ever like eight straight hours. A lot of times they're longer, but it tends to be broken down in chunks it's hard because nobody, no parent wants to just sit their kid down in front of a screen or put a tablet in their hand and say, okay, this is what you're going to have to do for the next hour. So mommy can 
do this meeting or finish this story. And there's been a lot of that, to be perfectly honest. And I know a lot of parents are going through that right now as well. But it's such an odd thing to be juggling so many jobs and wearing so many hats and feeling like you're failing at all of them <laughs> at the same time, which I know is just mom guilt, you know, but, but it's true. It's unprecedented. We've never been asked as a society to do something like this before. And so it's very difficult to give yourself a break when you're so exhausted from doing everything in a very mediocre way. Well, especially in those first few weeks where the news business, like there were no weekends. I mean, it felt like every single day something was happening. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to wrap my mind around the idea, like you said, of somebody like Spencer Hall not working for SB Nation for the next three months because particularly the way y'all's model has kind of been at the forefront of a lot of the kind of blurring of what we would think of online news and content and blogs and the social media space, right? Sure. So like, you know, if you follow Every Day Should Be Saturday or EDSBS, yeah, <laughs> then then you're following Spencer Hall. And so like, if he's not working, does it mean that he's not tweeting? I don't think that it necessarily does. But like, what what is considered work product for you? And what's considered your personal brand? For a lot of this, those lines are certainly blurred. I know Vox is a company just in general, it won't be an issue for us. Like I, especially if I were to promote some of the stuff I've written and I will be because the story of mine is dropping like the day before I'm gone. And so it's not like I can't tweet about that. They're also very smart in that obviously we don't get paid per tweet or we don't get paid for a social media use at all. <laughs> right, right, that's right. just kind of part of it. So, you know, with Spencer, especially, I mean, that's what another thing that makes it so hard to grasp is he is the brand. He built that brand. He's so, you know, essential to that audience that he'll still be Spencer, you know, he'll still be funny and witty. And I'm sure he's going to do some sort of side project. We're all coming up with our individual furlough projects now because we have the complete freedom to freelance or do a Patreon or new podcast. We can make anything we want as long as it's not, you know, already tied to a Vox product, which is great. So it'll be interesting to see, I think what he does, what Jason Kirk does. A lot of those people who have kind of become mini brands in themselves suddenly saying, okay, we know we've got this three-month time period. None of us want to stop making content. So how can we quickly and efficiently do something that hopefully, you know, best case scenario could pay our bills, but we'll probably just more than anything keep us writing. And will people invest in it? I think that's a question a lot of us have. It's, you know, certainly without question, we'd invest in Spencer Hall to the end of the earth as, as readers and viewers. But a lot of us forces you to kind of have that icky feeling of uh, like, am I asking people to subscribe to my work and are any of them going to do it? You don't know. But asking people to subscribe to their work at a, at a time when, you know, we're all taking cuts. I don't want to say it's the great equalizer. I keep hearing it's the great equalizer, but like, I mean, it's not really like, you know, there are people who have money that will be able to weather this and there are people that don't. And even if both are getting pay cuts, it's not quite the same thing. But I, yeah. you know, I do have friends who are doctors and lawyers and they're getting pay cuts or some of them are getting furloughed. And so like to that end, I do feel like we're all kind of finally realizing that like maybe the, the bootstraps uh, idea was a myth yeah. <laughs> and that like anybody could be filing for unemployment at any time. We're certainly feeling it here in our industry as we look forward to the fall, kind of that doomsday scenario is is the world without football. What are y'all hearing on on your end about what could be coming in terms of football in the fall? I've talked about this so much today. It's funny because I made the joke earlier, we all have a, a hundred different answers and scenarios when the ultimate true answer is we don't know. And, you know, for me, the biggest thing 
when it comes to one of the possible scenarios, which is playing it without fans, is, well, it's two things for me. First of all, you can't have it both ways. You can't claim this is amateurism and tell these players, okay, none of your friends or family are safe to be here. Cheerleaders aren't safe. Band isn't safe. Most people are not safe to be here, but we want you on that field doing this without saying that they're employees who deserve to be compensated. I just fully believe that. On the other end of it, it, there are certain sports, NASCAR comes to mind, that could happen without fans. The fans don't make up the, the brand or the experience. College sports, but especially college football, I think a lot of people don't realize how much of the experiential factor goes into why people invest in that sport. When you think about, you know, so when I think about some of the most memorable games from the past 10 years, can you imagine the kick six without fans? Would it have still been amazing? Yes, but imagine it with no fans and, and just like this, wow, can you believe it? <laughs> like, oh, Auburn's I, mean, gonna I don't think football it game. would have been amazing. I think it would have continued to be terrible without fans. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it would have, that's true. I, I should have, uh, I should have read the room a little better there. But I just, you know, when I think about all these things, I think about even games that I've personally attended it's never really the plays or what happens on the field. It's how people, it's the tradition, it's how people invest in the culture. And so it's more than just, can we satisfy a TV contract? It's you're really changing the product. You're changing what the product looks like, what it feels like, and whether people are interested. It's not that people wouldn't watch football, but there's a reason why so much money is made from it. There's a reason why we say things like the SEC, it just means more, right? People are investing in a culture. Well, and even if like we could, you know, I live in Tuscaloosa, even if we could go out and tailgate in the fall, like there are so many factors at work, like for Alabama to play just its first game, California has to get on board, Texas has to get on board, and Alabama has to get on board. And so like at some point, it has to be decided, I think, on the NCAA level, or the league level, at least maybe the SEC and you know, the Pac-12 all come back. But like, it just, there's so much negotiating that's going to have to happen in the next few weeks and months that we'll, we'll see. I mean, I know a lot of people are, are optimistic cautiously. So I'm certainly looking at it with a raised eyebrow. Yeah, I agree with that. A podcast I was on earlier today, actually, the host, his conclusion was pretty much the same. Like none of us really know. He thinks if it happens at all, it'll happen later. Like maybe start in October and have a modified season, all of that. So I think everyone's probably in consensus that it's not going to look like it normally would. Like, it's not like there's just going to be this one green light that, okay, well, everything's fine now. You have to, you're also talking about college students. Are we going to bring them back? Because you have to, like, they're not going to play without the students on campus. There are just too many factors at play here. And believe me, I mean, I certainly do not wish for sports to be gone, especially right now. Um, But even on a personal level, I don't want that. I love football season. I truly do not know what to do on Saturdays in the fall, you know. But at the same time, it seems silly to me that, and I'm not this person who calls out media in general, because I think it's more nuanced than that. But I don't think the right reaction is to attach ourselves as storytellers and sports writers to every person who's kind of an authority figure in their opinion on whether they think it's going to happen. Cause all you're doing is just feeding speculation. Yeah. I think those discussions are worth having and sharing, but it seems like every few hours someone else has shared an opinion about it and we're printing it as news. It's just not. And I think that's part of something just media members in general and journalists have to address at how we've covered 
this whole thing is there's been tremendous reporting and there's been a lot of questionable decisions. And I think fueling that fire when you know how rabid fans can be is, is one of them. Coming up after the break, Alex McDaniel and I discuss bourbon and the South. Grab yourself a glass. Well, let's talk about the South for a minute, just because for a long time, I guess I've always just thought of you as being from Mississippi. And then at some point I realized that you're not, but you're kind of all, you claim Mississippi, I think, maybe, but you're from all over the South, right? Sort of. Yeah. I was born in Texas, born in Fort Worth and um, partially raised in Plano. And my dad started a company when I was nine, 10, and we relocated to Memphis. We actually, I was in Memphis proper for a few years, but we moved across the river in Arkansas in Marion. And so that's where I finished high school. My dad was from Mississippi originally. He's from Kosciuszko. And the funny thing is he, when he got out of there, when he got out of Mississippi, he knew nothing would bring him back. Like he knew he had to get out to be okay. And yet he had this like duality of that and also anyone he ever met, like he would just start asking trivia questions and the answer was always Mississippi because he wanted people to know my home is a great place. There's just no room for me there. And so a lot of that influence came from him for sure. And, you know, when I went to Ole Miss and spent a lot of time there, stayed for grad school, I ended up spending nearly half my life, I think at this point was spent in Mississippi and investing not only in it as a state, but also investing in localized causes, investing in the people and the struggles because they were so unique to me. And I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like I was always so consumed with how can we figure out the best ways to help Mississippi and how do we equip people to do that? So no matter where I've gone, and I've certainly moved around a lot, most people think I'm from Mississippi. So that's just, that's not just a you thing. I mean, I call it my home. It's my home. Mississippi's my home. It just wasn't my first home. You are very Mississippi online. I mean, like, <laughs> to to be fair, like you are very tied to Ole Miss sports. Yes. And you were the editor of Oxford Eagle for a while. So very, very clearly tied to that city and that state. And I've always had, you know, it's fun to do the whole, like, thank God for Mississippi thing. But in the last few years, I guess I've realized how much I like Mississippi because they're kind of tied into it with Alabama. Yeah. Like the two states are always kind of the ones that get picked on by the rest of the country and have taken a bunch of road trips in the last few years to Oxford and Natchez. It's a lot of fun, uh, particularly Oxford. Oxford is a very fun town. And it's also a very interesting like writers community there and, and creators and thinkers. Yeah, Oxford is a cool town and I love it. And you know, I have a sister who's in school there now, but it's also very important to me, not only to people who don't live in Mississippi, but people who maybe the only thing they know of Mississippi is Oxford, to get out of it. Everybody's always going to have those debates, like, where would you rather live? And yeah, I get it. It's just, to me, Mississippi is what's happening in the Delta. It's what's happening in Jackson. It's what's happening on the coast. And that's for better and worse, by the way. I don't mean that in an entirely negative way. I just That's where the real potential is. That's where a lot of the real work is happening. It's great to have kind of a refuge like Oxford, where you know, you know you've got that writer's community and you've got wonderful leaders. The mayor of Oxford, I think, is doing a tremendous job right now managing everything. It's just, you know, it's easy to get caught in the illusion that this, of this like small town, like just charming little Southern place. And it is, but it's a big state, you know, I I try to be careful about 
not getting so caught up in all the things that I like about this one tiny place and remember just everything that's going on outside of it. Yeah, for a long time, I was born in Memphis, actually, and we moved to Birmingham when I was six. And so I've always claimed Alabama as my home, even though my birth certificate would technically make me a Tennessean. <laughs> I reject that label. <laughs> you know, I moved to Chicago and then DC and San Francisco and when I would kind of defend Alabama or defend the South, I guess I was always sort of saying, oh, no, Birmingham is different. And then I don't know at what point it was where it clicked for me. Like, no, like, we don't have to do that. Like, we don't have to say that Birmingham is different from the rest of Alabama because the rest of Alabama is great and has worth too. And, uh, you know, there are things that I think we would probably both want to change about Mississippi and Alabama. But, you know, there's such this like knee jerk reaction, particularly we've seen it even with the COVID crisis, looking down, people kind of thumbing their nose at, at New Orleans for having Mardi Gras, of all things, yeah. and kind of like, oh, well, uh, I think it was Michael Bavaro with, in a word, the South. And the, <laughs> and, and, and every Southerner online got very, very, very uh, in their feelings about it. But I, I guess I, I don't know when it kind of clicked for you. But for me, it was when I had kind of moved away and was processing what it meant to be a Southerner that it really started to resonate for me. Like, oh, no, like these, this is the place I want to be telling stories. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. I, when I was in journalism school, I did an emphasis in magazines. And I was a news reporter, but to me, magazines were just what I was interested in. And it didn't matter which magazine. I wasn't like into one type or the other. I just liked the idea of packaging stories. I liked working with long form things and short form things and finding a lot of different ways to tell a story. And that's about as far as I knew back then. You know, I just like, that's what I want to do. And I think growing up in the South, there's always the idea, and especially in small towns, where it's like New York is everything. And if you can just get to New York, then you made it. So that's all I could focus on. And I, I got a job in New York. It was my first job after college at Parade Magazine. And, you know, not making a lot of money, moved up there by myself, moved in with a roommate I had never met. It was just everything you could imagine. And I, I think everybody should do that. Everybody should go away. No matter, it doesn't have to be New York. Just like, go away and learn how to be an adult and learn how to struggle and how to figure things out on your own. I think it's great. But the main thing I learned when I was up there is I did not want to be up there telling stories. I didn't want to be working up there. I wanted to get back to the South. Part of that was probably fueled by the fact that any story assignment that was sort of Southern tinged, like if it had something to do with college football or anything, they sent me to the International Biscuit Festival in Knoxville. They would give it to me because they're like, she's our resident Southerner, send her there. That's a nice beat. I know, right? And so I got this kind of different, like shiny perspective on, oh, yay, I get to do all the fun things, you know, down here. And it, I stayed a year and then took a job at the Clarion Ledger in Jackson. And I had never lived in Jackson. And this kind of goes back to my point about when all you know is Oxford, you can you kind of get into that defensive, like, you don't understand kind of mode. And when I got back there, even though I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to be in news or, or whatever, all I knew is even if the job doesn't fit or if maybe it's not exactly what I want, I know I need to be down here doing what I'm doing. So I definitely understand that. You just get a different perspective. And you don't want to be down here telling the stories that I think a lot of people do. I call it mason jar journalism. Where it's like, you know, and, and nothing against like Southern living, country living, you know, things like that. Nothing against that at all. We need good things. And if people attach, if people outside the region attach themselves to the symbols, and great. And more good stuff, the better. It's not as simple as don't ignore the bad stuff. We don't need to ignore the very complex stories that happen down here. We don't need to ignore the nuance and 
it's not as simple as there are good things and there are bad things. We have a responsibility to tell people about this place in a way that reflects more than just the extremes. And I'm, I'm pretty passionate about that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, there was a brief period where like, it was a, it was several years where like I don't know a really great think piece on like the history of okra really did it for me and then at some point I was just like you know what southern culture isn't just like something rooted in history yes music originated down here and yes great food originated down here but there like, there are modern and current stories that people don't think of as southern that we should be telling as southern whether it's the filming of Marvel movies in Georgia or the, the loss of football potentially in the fall is particularly a, a Southern story. And so I think I've always appreciated the way that you approach that storytelling. And and even in some of the stuff that y'all have done at SB Nation, I think y'all did it. Was it a Thanksgiving food draft? And, yes. <laughs> and your choices very clearly reflected the South and some others didn't. <laughs> yes. And I did that intentionally. Like all of that was good food. But I, it was almost just kind of a, I'm going to be the obviously Southern one here. Let me go with some yeah. other things I could pick. You're also a big, uh, I'm not calling you a, a booze hound, but you are a big fan of uh, bourbon is my understanding. <laughs> I am. I am. Booze hound is funny. I should like start a blog or something called booze hound. <laughs> hey, you got three months. I uh, know. Hey, this could be my future. Yeah. And you know, again, that was born out of football. I... I was telling the story on like a bourbon podcast a few months ago because they asked me, how'd you get into it? And it was just truly, I was probably drinking a screwdriver at a tailgate and or drinking something that wasn't whiskey. And I remember my dad looking at me and he's just like, what's in your cup? And I told him, he's like, if you're going to do this for real, you need to drink whiskey. And I think all he had was Jack Daniels or something. And I'm not precious about whiskey either. Like Jack is fine. It, and I had like my first Jack and Coke and it was probably like, this much whiskey and this much coke but I, my world changed you know and yeah i just really love it it's i definitely prefer to drink that and i did i was still young then too and like that was kind of at the height of the peppy craze where everybody was suddenly all a flutter about bourbon and it became very cool to be into it you had mad men kind of on the tail end of that so you had a lot of like whiskeys um coming back into style i guess and, and I always tell people this, like I'm very much into the history of it and the culture of it and certainly what, you know, whiskey in the South, there's a story times a million. It's not even that I drink it a lot. I, I try to collect it as much as possible, but I'm, it's another thing. It's just like sports. I like the thing. Believe me, I like, I like the game, but it's everything around the game that fascinates me more. And I think I'm probably the same way about whiskey and bourbon, but I'm not like a connoisseur or anything. I've had some very nice Whiskeys before very nice bourbons, but I'm not that discerning if we're being honest. Like I'm really okay. <laughs> yeah, my my palate is not great. I had this conversation with with John T. Edge on on this podcast last year. Like there are some foods and drinks that I like more once I know the story behind it than I would maybe like if I were just tasting it. Like yeah. I can't necessarily tell you the difference between well, I I will say, Pappy, you can tell the difference. But there, there, you know, there's some whiskeys that I can't tell the difference between, like a good whiskey and a and a great whiskey. Yeah. Um, but I do love kind of the storytelling behind it and sort of the mystique that goes with it. What is the first memory that comes to mind when you think about tailgating on the Grove? Well, 
you know, I was in the marching band for most of undergrad. So my first year tailgating, I was a senior because I was editor of the paper that year. Instead of being editor, I had to quit band. It was a bummer. So my real first tailgating was long after I got to school. My parents bought, like we got the tent set up and it's the first year they had ever done that. So we were total noobs. And I remember that first game being just disgusting. It was humid and muddy and we had like straw on the ground to try to walk through it. At one point, like I slipped on something and my thumb got smashed in a cooler. It was the messiest, just most terrible thing in the world. And thinking back on it, like all I can think of how I, I was just so happy. And this was not like your old Miss tailgate, but this was no chandeliers for like paper plates. We didn't even have enough chairs. I was very much sitting on a cooler and I loved every bit of it because I can remember my dad like holding court with my friends, which he loved to do. You know, my mom and like my sister was younger at the time. Some of my best family memories memories came from those first few years, you know, and it's odd. It's, it's one of those things that I guess this, if it were to happen, this would be our 12th year doing it. But it's one of those things that after a few years felt like it was this lifelong tradition, which is such a weird thing to even say, but it, it just did. I feel like it's something that was always part of us. And, you know, obviously over the years, we were able to get our act together a little better and like we decorated and we're still not like super fancy people we have yet to do the chandelier thing but as our family changed over the years our tailgate changed and I want to write about that because it did my dad died in 2014 he had been diagnosed with cancer in 2012 so that 2012 season this all happened in October everything happens in October in my family he was diagnosed in 2012 so he missed a lot of the games that season 2013 was when I had my son in October. And so I missed a lot of the games that season. And then he passed away in 2014. So I didn't really get that many years doing that with him. But I think the years I have were just so powerful and special to me that I was like, I don't care how this looks, but we're going to, we're just going to have to do it forever. And so obviously when Jack was a baby, I took him a few times. It was exhausting. Now he's old enough to where it's normal. We play football and everything else, but it's, you know, I'm not that person who says the Grove is better than any tailgating experience in the country. All I know is like, that's my home and that little patch of land that my family likes to claim every Saturday. I mean, it's, it means a lot because it's witnessed a lot and there's been a lot of love and a lot of loss there. And I know your question was just about the first memory, but I decided to keep talking. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a much better answer than I, uh, that's why I didn't say anything. The silence, right? What about you? It's funny because maybe it was triggered because you talked about the rain, but like it seems like every time Alabama plays LSU at home, it rains. Because, oh, <laughs> wow. you know, I have memories from college of standing and saving a place uh, in the student section in ponchos. Actually, I think it was probably trash bags uh, <laughs> draped over our heads in order to, to save the spot. And then I want to say that the year. That Ole Miss beat Alabama, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I'm bringing up which year would that some be? Bad memories here, but the the, the year that y'all beat Alabama and which then one? lost to Arkansas. Oh yeah, I remember. Was... <laughs> 2015. And, and, and to, to keep you from going to the SEC championship, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and our shot in, it was pouring in Tuscaloosa, and you know, just I remember standing underneath a tent watching the tv and one of my best friends from college was there and he was there with his girlfriend who was from i want to say conway arkansas but i may be wrong sorry kelly and jessica if i am (laughs) but we were sitting there watching the game and like she was freaking out because the entire 
quad was cheering for Arkansas up against Ole Miss. And so maybe that's not like the best football. I mean, the best the best football moment of my life in terms of being in, in the stadium was easily Rocky Block, which is weird because like it's changed so much in my memory because like I remember it as being night and it was an afternoon game. But like, you know, Terrence Cody blocking kick in order to preserve the perfect season. And that was my senior year will always be the perfect football memory for me. But the perfect tailgating moment might have been that rainy Saturday watching Ole Miss lose on TV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that was a tough game. But I totally understand what you mean by that. Like things that can be totally unrelated to the reason you're there, but they're just so memorable for one reason or another because like you just can't think of another situation where everybody in the quad <laughs> in Tuscaloosa would be cheering for Arkansas for any reason. And that's kind of, you know, what makes that special. I have a special love for Alabama fans and Auburn fans, just because like Alabama was the first Southern state I lived in and I'm not counting Florida now that they're not Southern. I get a lot of crap about that, but I mean like deep South that I had no real tie to. My mom was originally from Michigan, but her dad was from Alabama, but still that I didn't spend a lot of time growing up there and to fall in love with a state just to fall in love with it. There's no like, Oh, my family history or my alma mater or anything just to fall in love with it was a very new thing for me. And, you know, obviously being there in 2014 and 2015, it was such a fun rivalry with Ole Miss and Alabama. And, you know, my best friends to this day, I I met in Birmingham. And it's, I've never felt close to another fan base. I'll say that. And that's someone who grew up in Arkansas, but Arkansas is a sensitive subject for me. (laughs) But I just never, you know, and I'm like, really not that petty when it comes to rivalry stuff. I love my jokes, but I don't care. I just never felt I never felt a tie to Arkansas in terms of, I certainly wish the best for the state and I don't hate it. I just never felt any tie to it, but I feel a tie to Alabama, you know, living there and having so many people I care about who went to Alabama. I mean, I'm not hating on Auburn. I just had more Alabama friends than Auburn friends. For It's okay to hate on Auburn. <laughs> but like, and also just to, get to cover sports in Alabama has been such a special thing because there's so much history there and, you know, our differences, I guess, make us, closer but it's been a blast to kind of have that perspective i think yeah and it's hard (laughs) woe is me it's hard as an alabama fan yeah you have a really hard time yeah it's (laughs) really tough because you have the potential for for several rivalries and i know alabama's historic rival has always been tennessee but because i was born in tennessee and because my dirty little secret is that i was a tennessee fan until like third or fourth grade do you have photos? <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are some somewhere <laughs> that that I've never really kind of been able to buy into the whole Tennessee hate week thing as much. Like my hatred for Auburn r- runs deep, <laughs> but but my biggest rivals, I guess, have been LSU and Florida. Well, actually, the team I hate more than any team in the world is is Clemson, and I think it's because of a moment in time. My father-in-law, who is from Michigan, but he did his PhD at Alabama, he hates Notre Dame to a level that I will never understand because for most of my adult life in sports, Notre Dame has not been relevant in anything. And so like I do not hate Notre Dame. I kind of hated USC for a little while in the Pete Carroll years, but I hate I mean I'm I'm sorry to all, anybody who listens who's a Dabo supporter, but I'm firmly in the never Dabo camp and I hate Clemson. The hatred I have for Auburn can kind of go away because like I can, you know, like there are things about them being in Alabama that make me like them to some extent. But 
but sure. Clemson is the one that I can kind of select as my big bad. But Ole Miss has always kind of been like the, okay, if we're going to have to lose to somebody <laughs> and like somebody is going to make it to the national championship that's an SEC team that's not us, Ole Miss has kind of been that team for me. Uh-huh. And I think it was kind of cause of that season where they lost to Arkansas. And I was like, oh, they, they were so close. So close. They were so Always. close. And like, and even like, <laughs> if you think about like little brother, and I know like in Mississippi, they're the big brother, but like, um, like if you think about like little brother, dumb, like Eli versus Peyton, like there's, you know, like they have that, yeah. that vibe. So I, I, I do kind of root for Mississippi more than a lot of the other SEC teams. I used to kind of feel that way about LSU. Because I like Coach O, and I still like Coach O, but yeah. now that they're the defending national champions, it's harder for me to uh, root for them <laughs> as my underdog team. You know, yeah, and Coach O is such a such a story there, especially as somebody who was in school when he was coaching at Ole Miss. Yeah, the thing about not growing up in Mississippi is that the team I was supposed to hate was truly inherited, and my dad grew up in Mississippi in the fifties and sixties, and that means LSU till he died hated them. And I would ask him even in the later years, can you honestly say you hate LSU more than Mississippi State? And he would be like, since 1959, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Just because of Billy Cannon, you know, that's back when Ole Miss was a relevant team. So they were kind of always fighting for who's going to be the best. Obviously to me in my time, like LSU was just good. Ole Miss for the most part was not good. So it's more like a just maybe just like a fun almost like putting on a costume to hate LSU but at the same time I don't feel the animosity toward Mississippi State that I think a lot of people either expect me to or just a lot of people might have I think maybe growing up if I had grown up in Mississippi that would be a little different I come from a Mississippi State family like my dad's side of the family all of them who like either they went to college there or they're a fan of Mississippi State he was the only one who was an Ole Miss fan so to me, especially somebody who like loves Mississippi, claimed it as my home, I kind of feel the same way. It's like I can still connect with Mississippi State because it's all for one. But I get into some brawls on Twitter that I don't even, I'm not even part of. I just get tagged in things where people are being terribly mean to each other. And I'm like, I just don't have it in me. That happened to me. I, I tweeted out like that I loved Mark Ingram and somebody called me a bammer. And it was like, well, I mean, I guess... Like he played for Alabama 10 years ago and now he's a Raven and he's great. Like, 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 I like Cam Newton now too, for what it's worth. But like, you know, yeah, it's, you can't escape that. Like on Twitter, if you love something that automatically implies you hate its opposite. So that's the world we live in. And sometimes that's true. Yeah. I believe after you left the Oxford Eagle had briefly left journalism, right? before going back to SB Nation. Yes. It's obviously not the easiest industry to be in right now. Are there times where you kind of think about walking away from it still? So when I left the Eagle, you know, at that time we had launched Oxford Magazine, which is a monthly subscription-based magazine on a bare bones staff. And I was editing, I was writing most of the copy, I was laying most of it out. There was a lot of pressure there anyway. It was a tough job, but this wasn't like one of those handout advertising magazines. Like people were paying for this. And so I was working 12, 13, 14 hour days every day. And my son was like two, three, four at the time, very young. And it just got to be too much. And I'm like, if this is how it's always going to be, it's just me being tired and, you know, maybe not treated as well at work or undervalued, then I just don't want to do this anymore. It was exhausting. And I felt like 
my skill set was enough that I could do my own consulting work. I could do freelance if I still wanted to write. I never stopped wanting to tell stories. I just didn't know if there was a fit for me in the industry to do that. So I left and started my own little consulting thing. And it was, (laughs) this is how my life works. I rented a little office in downtown Memphis and was very excited. I had just like secured my first big contract, big to me contract, doing some web design when I got the call (laughs) from SB Nation. And you know, that's a job that I had wanted to work for them for years. Our timing was never right. Like my first day at the Oxford Eagle, Spencer Hall asked me like, hey, we have this college football reporting position open. And I'm like crying in my driveway because I just took this Oxford job. So the timing was never right. And they're like, this deputy editor gig is open. We'd really like to talk to you about it. Oh, you gotta be joking me. <laughs> just shifted <laughs> gears. Like I've been putting everything into this new business. And so I was convinced that I wasn't going to take it, but I wanted to hear him out. And I had one interview in Memphis, like somebody came to Memphis to talk to me and then I ended up going to the offices in New York and there was no way I could turn it down. There was just no way. I mean, it was aside from wanting to work there, I could have walked away for that alone. Like it wasn't just that it was, just the company, the Waveboxes for working parents with their flexibility and paid time off and really taking care of parents, not just saying we tolerate you, even though you have a kid, which I think is a, a different thing. They actually have people in the company who are groups that advocate for parents and um, rally for them and try to give them resources to do their jobs very well. And I knew I would never find another opportunity like that. I just knew it and it wouldn't get to work for another company like that. So uh, <laughs> a little business that I started, you know, I was able to finish my, my obligations there and I took the explanation job and that was that. And here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got furloughed, but, and I've, I've enjoyed a lot of places where I've worked. So I don't mean this to sound like I haven't, I would say ale.com by far is one of the most fun places that I worked. Every media company has its issues. And, but it's like I said, some of the people that I worked with there, my best friends in the world, I just, I did not expect to be so close to my colleagues at SB Nation because I would be working in Birmingham. And a lot of them, they're either in New York, DC or scattered. And when I tell you, like, we all genuinely like each other and there's no backbiting. I know it sounds like a lie because you've always got like one or two <laughs> people who are just like, you know, there's just always issues. We really do just respect and love each other tremendously. And there's not a single person in there who would ever want to deceive or betray or, or, or for anybody to get a rough deal. And I think it's another reason why the furloughs have been hard on a lot of people. It's not just the very nature of a furlough and the fact that a lot of our futures are uncertain. We just like each other so much and not getting to talk to each other every day and not getting to advocate for each other's work is going to be sad. And I, I always compare it to band because that's how it feels. It's like a family of people who probably at one point in their lives were told you're a misfit for this reason or another. And, but when those, all those people come together and embrace it, it magic happens. And I know that just sounds not true at all. Like I'm making it up, but I, I really love every single person there, including my boss who is just tremendous. Well, I hope things work out there sooner rather than later in the short term. I hope that all of our listeners will go follow you on Twitter if they haven't already, but how else can they support you? I want to definitely keep creating content this summer. And what I think I'm going to do 
is some sort of like sports culture, sports history blog situation where like the stories that I honestly just haven't had a lot of time to write since I've been editing, I'll have a place to put them and do like a podcast and stuff like that. And maybe just hook it up to, I don't know, a Substack or a Patreon and do like, I don't know, $2 a month for a subscription. I don't know yet. I need to plan it out. I just know I don't want to stop creating. And so once I figure out the best way to do that in a way that I think is fair. I just, I just don't want it to feel like I'm asking for support, if that makes sense. Like, and that sounds so silly of me, but that's just how I am. I just know I don't want to stop. And so if I can keep going and if people want to read my stuff enough to buy me a cup of coffee, that'd be awesome. And I'll just, I'll definitely tweet all that out <laughs> when it's finalized, but I'm giving myself, you know, not for load yet. It starts on May 1st. So I'm still very much in the swing of things at work, but I'm trying to give myself enough time to really be intentional about what I do over these next three months and ignore my natural urges to just work myself to death, which is just what I do. And to say, okay, but what are you going to create? Cause I don't want to just throw a bunch of slap on the internet and say, hey, look, I kept working. I, even if I only do three things this summer, I want them to be good. So to be determined, we'll see. Well, this is a lot of fun. I would be ashamed if we went this far and recorded this entire episode and I didn't shout out our mutual friend, Brittany Edwards. Yes. Uh, we, you know, we've learned that we both have ties to Memphis and Michigan, but apparently we also have a mutual friend from Arkansas. Yeah. And, and Brittany Edwards, who is about to be a mother any day now. So uh, shout out to Brittany and congratulations. I know. We love you, Brittany. <laughs> I haven't seen Brittany since our mutual friend's wedding, which was several years ago. But yeah, she and I went to high school in the same tiny little Arkansas town. So small world. Small world indeed. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Alex. And we look thank forward you. to uh, reading you again whenever we can. Thanks. And that's our show. While she's on furlough, Alex has launched a special project dedicated to weird moments in sports history and Southern gas station food. I've subscribed to it, and you should too. You can find it at alexmcdaniel.substack.com. And this episode is dedicated to all her colleagues at SB Nation and the Banner Society, as well as everyone else in sports coverage. And as sports leagues start to make plans to return, with lives and billions of dollars potentially on the line, we desperately need these reporters out there walking us through what's going on. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletters. And if you are feeling generous or just want to support media, leave us a five-star review. That'll help us spread these great stories from the South. And until next week, be well.